Welcome to HashiCast, the self-proclaimed number one podcast about the world of DevOps practices, tools, and practitioners. Today, we're talking to Andy Minoski, Principal Product Manager of HashiCorp Vault. Andy has an interest in all things cryptography and security. We're going to try to answer the question, what does it mean to do secrets management and secure development workflows as an application developer? Before we get into that, however, Andy, I get the sense that this is more than just a job. Yeah, um, so I actually found my way into high tech uh, largely as a product of cryptography. So when I was in school and studied computer science, my emphasis area was in cryptography specifically. And um, both in school as part of ROTC and then leaving the school um, as my first jobs out of college, my focus area was on cryptography and security. But cryptography was sort of my like my passion area and my love. Um, and so, you know, my focus has been primarily throughout my career on sort of how do we kind of marry these topics of kind of arcane principles of cryptography and mathematics with sort of solutions within information security. So it's something that I'm super passionate about and nerdy about. That's so cool. And how did you end up working with HashiCorp Vault? Like, uh, how does cryptography play into that? So uh, what seems like a very long time ago, um, I sat down and had coffee with Armand um, back in 2016. And I was at a period of my life where I was trying to figure out sort of what I wanted to do next. I was coming out of venture capital, and I figured that I wanted to get back into working you know, more contextually with products, which is kind of more of my the focus in the earlier and mid parts of my career. Um, and at the time, HashiCorp was looking to hire externally its first product manager, and that product manager was specifically focusing on Vault. Um, so a lot of the area that Vault, op- especially Vault Enterprise, operates within now is an area that I spent most of my early parts of my career on, specifically on like enterprise key management, enterprise cryptography, etc. Um, and so just one thing led to another, and you know, we I started working at HashiCorp specifically on this context of Vault. Um, why Vault in particular, though, is really interesting, and it's kind of the same reason why we as a company built Vault, and why I think it's started to gain a lot of. Um, uh, interest uh, from both the open source community as well as the enterprise community. And that really has to do with the fact that managing secrets is really hard. Um, in the context of cryptography, you know, half of cryptography is is the really cool part, which is like the math and sort of like the, the kind of cloak and dagger stuff around how do we like make sure that we arm computers that are really, really powerful and uh, math that's really, really complex to make problems really hard to solve for someone trying to break into those secrets. But the other half, which is just as important, if not on a a day-to-day basis, much more important, is key management. How do I sort of protect and sequester the the information necessary for me to validate that you are who you say you are, that as an application, you do have the rights to be able to access that information? Um, That is a huge, challenging problem that I think at HashiCorp was faced when we originally started to create what became Vault. And then, you know, for me personally, it's something that if you work in cryptography or if you work in, um, you know, data security, it's something that you face on a day-to-day basis. Like, before you learn even the math that's around how sort of, like, different principles in cryptography ensure that information is very hard to deduce if you don't have the rights to it, you learn that you need to protect that sensitive information. And so Vault is really focused on protecting those those secrets, be they keys, be they passwords, etc. And the fact that it's able to do it so so simply... Given the context of how we've done that problem, you know, previously, especially in like the global 2000 and the enterprise, is something that really attracted me to the product as well as I think is a big reason why the product has been able to be successful. 
That's super interesting. And I kind of want to talk about the the whole kind of how so many people end up having a coffee with Armon and getting employed at HashiCorp. But um, I'm I'm not going to go into that. But but I think I think what is interesting is something that you touched on there, and that HashiCorp Vault was a product of a need by HashiCorp, and it was I think Atlas, which which was kind of the the, the precursor to uh, Terraform Cloud. Vault was was built for that need and. Obviously, then it was decided that this is a great product, and if it solves our purposes, it, it'll probably solve the wider communities. Can you talk to us about that process? Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, Armon in many cases probably can go into much greater detail on this, but um, Vault, or what really became Vault, was the direct consequence of the team at HashiCorp, which at the time was a very small team. Um, I think it was around like twenty people um, trying to manage. You know how applications would have access to different types of credential infrastructures. So when I say that, I mean specifically, like most other startups at the time, we really focused on how do you, for example, manage access to GCP, Azure, AWS, etc. All given the context of you know we might be getting free credits at one place or another, and we want to be able to you know more efficiently use those credentials. Um, Given that those were application credentials, we could have developed, like, you know, developed systems that work in a very application-specific way, right? We could develop ways to be able to specifically communicate with AWS or GCP. But there were, as sort of the development of Atlas continued, as I understand it, there were times where we ran into different types of secrets. And it sort of became apparent that the best way to deal with this problem was to deal with secrets regardless of whether it's an encryption key or a credential for a different cloud interface, all as sort of a sacrosanct piece of information that we should protect. And if we focus on protecting those secrets regardless of whatever they are at a higher level and abstract sort of the nature of those secrets uh, at an application level, it, it allows us to be able to do something really cool. It allows us to be able to prescribe workflows, to be able to protect a specific process rather than kind of you know, going down the rabbit hole each time to figure out how we typically solve for key management in one context and then key management in a similar context but with a different type of application or infrastructure. So I think this is super interesting. And and I think one of the things we want to talk about today is obviously secrets with relation to application development. And I think you kind of mentioned a few different types of secret. But I think the key thing is here that a secret isn't just a username or a password. Well, it isn't just a password. It, it's it kind of something that we use as a term to describe a multitude of different things. Could you kind of talk through us the, the, the various different secrets that I as a developer may touch in my sort of daily base, daily workflow? Absolutely. So as a developer, I mean, we frequently interact with information that either has a, you know, a secret or, you know, a, a confidential sort of nature. Um, you know, and and those and the, the context associated with whether something is secret or whether something is, you know, I should kind of keep it more closely like associated with my chest varies depending upon the workflow. Um, but examples of some of those secrets um, are, you know, we talked about before with Atlas the, you know, application credentials to be able to uh, manage different types of pieces of infrastructure, whether it's a cloud infrastructure or whether it's on-prem. As a developer, I typically have those credentials, something like an AWS secret key or um, an IAM role that comes from GCP to be able to, for me to deploy infrastructure. Um, I also frequently interact with um, things like you know, PII data. So if I'm talking about sort of my users themselves or other types of uh, pieces of information related to real people that are entering into my application, uh, that data is typically, depending upon the context, either semi-private, as in, 
and such that I, I don't have a regulatory burden on me to ensure that that data has to be protected in a certain way, or it's very private. Um, you know, there are certain regulations like GDPR um, or the uh, California State Privacy Act or, um, you know, various types of like workflow specific regulations like the SEC has something called SEC 17A4 which specifically focuses on uh, information regarding any kind of like securities offering. Um, these different contexts can imply sort of how how secret that information is um, but even if it's not critically like regulatory secret uh, it's something that could have a context that is private in nature. I just don't want to share my users like names or email addresses. So secrets are not just an operator problem then? I mean, I can kind of identify a number of different patterns there where I have to handle certain pieces of data. I mean, personally identifiable data. There's a, as an application developer, I can store that um, at rest, encrypted using the database mechanisms. But like, what if I'm putting a credit card number on a queue? How do I kind of manage things like um, passwords? How do I sort of handle personally identifiable data, as you said, you know, personally identifiable data, GDPR, that, that's expensive if, if that information leaks. So I suppose what you're saying really to me is that as a developer, I really, really need to care about this stuff. Exactly. And you may not even have all the information necessary to know that you need to care, right? But depending upon the context of that user, so a really good contextual example of this is that um, if I give you a phone number, Generally in the United States, that number is not sensitive. It's it's or it's not private. It's sensitive. It's something that is that you need to care about, but you don't really need to care about it, or else um, you know you'll, the worst case is that you'll get some bad press if you, a bunch of those phone numbers leaks. However, if I'm an EU citizen and I give you a phone number. I now incur the entire regulatory burden of GDPR because it's personally identifiable information related to EU citizen data. And if I fail to be able to deliver on that, to deliver on the protections necessary, I could face, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in damages. Um, and depending upon where that data is coming from, the context, who is my regulatory um, supervisor for it, depending on which state within the EU is reviewing it, I mean, there could be even like jail time and things like that. So it's a very serious burden. But as a developer, you don't know that. You don't necessarily know or should be expected to know sort of like the complexities of compliance requirements for different types of like data and the context that data is being used in. And so I think there's there's absolutely, yeah, this is not just an operator problem, but there's also this like asymmetric information problem that as a developer you run into, which is, you know, I need this critical piece of information because it's how my application needs to work. I now also need to ask sort of like whether or not that piece of information has this contextual regulatory burden and sort of how do I how do I figure all this out while just trying to make the application that I'm trying to make in the first place. So I think one of the the interesting things around that, and you kind of mentioned again, that there is potentially regulatory framework you're not aware about. As application developers, we need to get into the habit of talking about this. So we used to look at application um, secrets and security as a non-functional requirement for, for every kind of task that we would look at or every epic or however granular, we would ask the question, does this have any security requirements? And we would continually ask that question. And that would kind of like, just start of triggering the thought process around that. And, and I suppose once you've identified the need, you then, I guess, need to find a solution. Absolutely. And I think to hopefully find a solution that doesn't set security at odds with your ability to implement and build applications or really just set security at odds with creativity, right? 
I think that was one of the biggest things that we faced as a company internally was how do I protect sensitive information regardless of whatever that sensitive information is pursuant to the needs of that protection of that information but not let it hinder my ability to develop new applications and I think that's the biggest challenge that a lot of developers face which is that there seems like you know um, you know on the face this the sentiment that if I want to secure data I've got to secure that data but that comes at the cost of me being able to implement the infrastructure or performance that I really need for that application requirement. And that's ultimately why we built Vault. Our, our goal was to try to build a system that allows us to be able to prescribe workflows for how I would protect certain types of information and do that at the operator level, right? Like the operator or whoever, you know, especially in the context of Vault Enterprise, if you have sort of a security team who understands those, like the complexities of all those requirements, allow them to set up sort of the workflows. But you as a developer, you shouldn't have to sit on this like concept of, I have to make my data sensitive, like sensitive pieces of information be protected, but I should do that at the cost of my ability to be creative and otherwise build applications. So, you're saying that if I'm managing secrets myself, like I'm using OpenSSL, for example, or I'm using, uh, you know, sort of the internal Go libraries for hashing and encrypting data, this will sort of stop scaling, right? When we're trying to understand the context of all of this sensitive data and how we're supposed to manage it. Yeah, and I think, well, you raise a really interesting point that I think is is kind of the reason why I, I love working on Vault, and it's a big part of my personal career, which is that, you know, again, cryptography comes down to two components. One is about how I set up the defenses related to checking to see whether or not I, you know, I, I am building resolute infrastructure. If we imagine sort of security as like a castle, right, and cryptography is a castle more specifically, like, Half of this is the selection of the algorithms, the processes, etc., to be able to defend information. These are like sort of the castle walls that sit on the outside. But the other half, which is just as important, is like where do I protect the keys associated with, um, you know, Go Crypto or OpenSSL, etc. And that's the keep that's inside the castle. So what Vault is really doing for you is Vault is not you know, changing the dynamics of whatever you want to choose for your different type of like cipher scheme or cryptographic libraries. So you can choose OpenSSL or Go Crypto or, you know, the, uh, the Java cryptography suite, whatever you want at the end of the day. But when it comes to that key management problem of where to put the keep, Vault's job is to make it as dead simple as possible for you to be able to store those keys in a sensitive, secure information like place. And for you to not have to worry about how you build that keep. Let us figure out the hard parts about, you know, sort of how that keep is built, how that keep is resolved to be able to resist attack, and then you can build whatever style of walls you want outside of that keep to be able to protect the information that you want. Out of curiosity, what is the architecture of this keep, right? What makes it so secure? Can you kind of give me a Vault 101? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Vault sees security in this context as an identity problem. And specifically what we mean by that is, is that, you know, we want to divide this up into two sets of problems. One, are you who you say you are? Do you have the right to be able to access this information or perform a workflow that's orchestrated by Vault more specifically? And the second one is, if you are not who you say you are, we want to make it as hard as possible for you to be able to access that information in that keep. On the first step, you know, when we talk about verifying who you are, the biggest challenge that we've faced both internally at HashiCorp and then I think as the part of the larger open source community and then also with many of our customers in the Global 2000 is really a question on, you know, how do I attribute identity across a variety of different types of identity platforms or IDPs? 
So I, Andy, as a person, have an identity that is my logical self. Um, my friends know me, my colleagues know me at work, etc. I have that, that context of that identity. But how I attribute that identity is going to vary depending upon the context. So I have a credit card that I, or like a series of credit cards that I have personally that I might use for different contexts. And depending upon which credit card I use, I have a different certificate of identity there, a Visa, a MasterCard, an Amex, etc. I similarly have a driver's license and a passport. These are different documents that have different sort of backend systems or different identity providers. But at the end of the day, regardless of whatever type of like certificate of identity I use, method of attribution, I am Andy. And so the focus of Vault is really on, from its identity problem, how do I verify who you are as an application or a user, regardless of whatever type of like certificate of identity system that you use, and regardless of whatever backend identity platform that you use. So part of it is really about that verifying that you are who you say you are problem. And unfortunately, I think in the past, um, when we as application developers have built systems, that's been a really big challenge. And it hasn't been a challenge from a security point of view. It's just been an organizational challenge to be able to verify you know, a different identity depending upon a different context. Um, and then associated with that identity, what kind of roles do you have? Should I be able to read secrets? Should I be able to create my own? Should I be able to you know, perform any kind of like traditional RBAC or role-based access control pattern on a specific set of secrets? So if we solve that problem, that solves a lot of the hard parts from an application developer point of view of just really, are you who you say you are and should I gain access to those secrets? On the other end of this problem suite is sort of the, if you are not who you say you are, make it really hard to be able to access the secrets within the key. Um, at REST, we use AES-256 and Galois counter mode, or AES-256 GCM mode as our cipher suite. And one of the reasons why we chose AES-256 GCM was that it's a very resolute and fast algorithm for encrypting data at REST, but it also allows us to be able to ensure that data can be protected at REST for a very, very long period of time. AES-256 GCM is resolved against most types of like symmetric quantum computing attacks. More specifically, there's something called Grover's algorithm, which is an algorithm that focuses on um, being able to speed up the process of kind of guessing um, what would otherwise be the key for this algorithm. Um, we AS256 GCM for uh, a variety of reasons is actually better resolved against Grover's than other types of symmetric key encryption. So choosing that algorithm was a choice for us to be able to say, look, this is sort of like the the stone structure of the keep. I want to minimally have to like rebuild that stone structure over time. Let's just choose the most resolved stone that we can. Um, and then similarly, you know, we allow you within Vault to be able to um, prescribe sort of however you want to encrypt uh, communication in flight. So uh, you can configure your own version of TLS uh, for encrypting all the communication that happens within Vault. And I think the really exciting part about all of this is that regardless of whether we're talking about in-flight encryption or at-rest encryption, you as a developer don't need to worry about how that key management happens. Um, Vault handles all of its own internal key management for both these processes, which ensures that when you communicate to Vault, all I've got to do as a developer is focus on how I want to attribute myself. And once I've chosen whatever is that identity problem to attribute myself with, like whatever platform I want to use, whether it's my credit card or like, you know, my ID if I'm a person or whether I'm using like an IAM role for GCP or I'm using an LDAP or AD credential, etc. I then go into Vault and I say, "Give me the secret." And if I've got the right, uh, you know, the rights to be able to know that that secret's even there in the first place, or that I can properly have the RBAC for it, I get it. There's no key management involved. There's no sort of like context around how do I build up that own keep. I just walk into the keep where I can't get in in the first place. A lot of the setup around that possibly is going to be an ops problem, I guess. I mean, it's sort of a, I'm guessing, a, a sort of a combination between sort of operations, IT policy, or security policy, um, IT security that kind of traditional role more so than the actual active development 
active developer making those decisions or where kind of like where is I as a developer? Where would I kind of have input into the the process of what secrets I can access or how I'm going to access them? So that's a really good question. We typically see that as a as a conversation between ops and development. Um, you know, as a developer, where we've seen that happen, especially within Vault Enterprise, is typically around the identity systems that they want to use. So you as a developer, you have an opinion, probably very much so on what identity you want to be able to use to attribute you know, your applications for specific contexts for accessing certain types of secrets or orchestrations for secrets that are hosted by Vault. Um, what, you know, the data, how Vault protects its data, or more importantly, how Vault sort of unlocks the keep to be able to have users and applications communicate with it, which is a process that we call unsealing, that typically lies outside of the developer's workflow. But I think one of the things that we're really excited about with Vault is that we didn't build it to be that way. We didn't build Vault to, like, you know, forcibly divide development and operations. Especially with Vault Enterprise, you can go download Vault right now, and you can go kind of deploy Vault on its own with minimal configuration necessary, such that you can deploy Vault and have those kind of prescribed opinions on your own and set up your own environments. And this is really, a, like, when we look at especially Vault Enterprise, this is how our first set of Vault Enterprise customers came to be. They deployed Vault within development teams because they wanted to be able to have a secure place to be able to share secrets depending upon the context of how their applications were connecting to it. And that ultimately spiraled out into these kind of like very, very large deployments of Vault um, where it's processing trillions of transactions per day, uh, or sorry, per per year, <laughs> um, uh, for um, that would be very exciting. Those trillions of transactions per day, uh, trillions of transactions per year um, on very very sensitive information. So yes, you know there are typically more ops focused problems on Vault, on like how I unseal Vault, where is Vault is run, on like what kind of server, etc. But they don't have to be that way. Vault is built in such a way that allows you to be able to run Vault well as like a team of one or a team of one million. So when if we, if we kind of look, so let's drill down specifically into that developer workflow or the application development. What are going to be the touch points? What are as as an application developer? What touch points am I going to have on Vault? How do I interact with it? Absolutely. So I'm going to typically interact with Vault in one of two areas. I'm going to interact as a developer with Vault um, either through the the REST API. So Vault, like most of the other HashiCorp products, has a very like, very deep REST API that allows you, regardless of whatever type of programming language or framework that you're working in, the ability to be able to request secrets or request workflows. And I keep saying this term workflow. In Vault, there's something that's called a secret engine. And a secret engine is is not is sort of an extension on sort of the basics of, I've got a secret stored within Vault, let me go get that secret out. It's a workflow associated with um, how I might use a secret stored within Vault to conduct a transaction or or kind of experience where I don't even need to see that secret. So a really good example of this is that there's a secret engine within Vault called the AWS Secret Engine. And the AWS Secret Engine allows me to generate ephemeral AWS credentials without me having to retrieve the underlying AWS secret key to go back to AWS and um, thus generate those credentials myself. This minimizes the possibility of something called a side channel attack, which is someone trying to go around the cryptography that would protect a sensitive piece of information and steal it. Um, it also just minimizes the complexity for you as a developer. So if I'm a developer and I want to go request that orchestration workflow, I just call this one REST API function for me to generate an IAM credential and I'm off to the races. I don't think about sort of the context of 
you know, am I of keys like accessing that from an encrypted location, etc. All that is taken away from me, and I'm just calling something in the REST API. And provided I've been able to authenticate it into Vault previously with the right token infrastructure, and that token infrastructure is based off of sort of how I have decided to attribute myself and my identity previously with you know an IAM role or an LDAP or AD credential or whatever type of credential that I wanted to use as an application to verify I am who I say I am, I'm able to you know either conduct that workflow or just get a secret out of Vault um, from that REST API call. There are similarly, by the way, um, a number of community-driven um, like uh, libraries and frameworks to be able to simplify the process for accessing Vault. Um, good examples of those are um, the, uh, I think Ansible Tower has native support for you being able to um, inject secrets from Vault into CICD pipeline workflows. So you don't need to think about how the cryptography is to be able to protect those secrets at rest. It just is automatically inserted, provided you've configured it properly. Um, there are popular uh, language libraries like um, uh, like uh, like uh, Java Springs uh, support for Vault or uh, Sharp Vault, which is a very popular community library for using Vault in the context of .NET and specifically C Sharp secrets. Um, all of these kind of like methods really wrap around the the API, though. And so at the end of the day, you are probably communicating with the REST API as a developer. It's really funny. Every time I hear the the explanation of the developer workflow, it reminds me, a friend of mine describes it as like the Monty Python workflow. So like Monty Python and the Holy Grail, the bridge keepers asking like, what is your name? What is your quest? And that's just every time I hear it, I'm like, that's exactly what Vault is doing. And every time you interact with the API, every time you, uh, you know, even the built-in workflows that you have with application authentication as well. So it's really fun to hear it. Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, at the end of the day, like cryptography is really neat. There's a lot of cool math and like like quantum stuff and everything going on, but this is really an identity problem. This is like really an identity problem of are you who you say you are and do you have the rights to be able to do what you do? So you're absolutely right. Monty Python was very prescient and sort of it's like, what is your name? What is your favorite color? And, you know, sometimes depending on the workflow, you do want to know like what is the average velocity of like an African swallow? Like it's, 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 it's definitely sort of a challenge to be able to implement those systems. But once, um, you know, the whole goal of Vault is to be able to make that challenge as minimal as possible such that you can deploy something that solves that identity problem and then makes it very, very difficult for someone who is not the right user application to be able to access that information. It makes me think, do you ever think that Vault will be accessible to someone who's not a developer? So someone who's a consumer who's maybe using it for passwords or someone who maybe wants to use it to protect their credit card information as they submit to some e-commerce website? That's a very good question. Um, so when we built Vault, our focus was really on the DevOps workflow and specifically the, the persona of the developer and the operator. How do we simplify the process of protecting sensitive information and, and, the, and the process of verifying you are who you say you are to be able to access that information? Um, the logical next step would be to talk about like users. How do I focus on how users have um, you know, the ability to store secrets within, within Vault or simplify orchestrations for workloads for users, like you know credit card numbers and things like that. There's a lot of cryptography and secrets management associated with how I manage or generate even credit card numbers and credit card Stripe data and CAN data, etc. Um, I think our focus is still there's still a lot of stuff to do there with regards to developers and operators, but you know we can address some of those user concerns by making sure that we make it as easy as possible for developers to be able to use Vault. And when I let me clarify a little bit of what I mean when I say that um, Vault is there's a constant 
process with Vault to make Vault simpler. We will never make Vault as simple as we would like it to be. Um, and part of that process really comes down to simplifying the verification of identity for a user application and then how they use that context. I think what you'll be seeing, and then especially also the operator burden of like deploying Vault and running a Vault server. Um, I think what you'll be seeing from us is us simplifying all of those three key bases such that it becomes a lot easier for you to deploy Vault. And more importantly, there you don't have to be, um, you know, a, a very adept developer to be able to, or a very experienced developer, as I think the better way to put it, to be able to deploy and use secrets management within Vault. Um, there's a big initiative going on, and I'm sure that you all probably understand this better than I do, around like no-code development and sort of like how do I simplify the process of, you know, becoming a developer, regardless of whatever my background is and regardless of whatever my previous skill set was. I think we can do a lot there in Vault in terms of simplifying that process for um, developers of all levels of experience, training, etc., to be able to harness the power of Vault. And by doing that well, and especially doing that well on the identity side, I think that we can improve how applications are built for users and making sure that it's as easy as possible to protect the information that goes into those applications. Because at the end of the day, the, whole, the original problem why we built Vault is that it's really hard to build the systems to protect user information or protect credential information. That is really kind of like the same problem that these kind of new personae of developers that we're trying to address face right? It's, it's not about people want to be insecure. Everyone wants to be secure. It's about the challenge associated with building the systems and infrastructure to properly secure that information. And we see our goal within Vault is really, let's go make that problem as simple as possible for you as a developer. It's, it's a little bit like if you can be informed, right, to protect the user information as a developer, you can protect the user, right? And maybe the user doesn't have to go through these extra steps. Um, so one last question before we conclude. It's a difficult set of circumstances happening today, and we sometimes want to treat it business as usual when in reality it's not purely business as usual. So what are your thoughts around cryptography and information security and how it might affect our lives as we change the way we work and interact today? Absolutely. Um, so I spent a lot of my time in my kind of the middle part of my career around security research, which is specifically like how do we use the technology and science behind um, things like cryptography or information security um, for understanding how adversaries work. So people that are like hackers or the quote unquote bad people. Um, a lot of my colleagues that are in the security research community are noting that um, with the rise of COVID-19, there has been a very, very big boom in like phishing and other types of attacks that are really exploiting um, folks who are um, rightfully concerned about what's going on. Um, you know, part of that process in the context of Vault is really about the identity management problem and then the secrets management problem associated with something called that we call encryption as a service. And encryption as a service is really about like simplifying complex cryptographic tasks. One of the most common tasks that everyone, um, regardless of whether you're a Vault or developer user or not, um, faces on a daily basis is um, going online. And one of those is around the S in HTTPS, which is um, SSL. So um, a common way for browsers and other types of like systems to be able to know that something is very wrong with a phishing request is to know that they do not have a, a valid certificate associated with the end website. So if I like click on a website and it says it's like from like the NHS or the CDC or the World Health Organization, going to a website that the URL looks legit, 
but you know Chrome or um, Edge or some other browser of your choice is able to say, hey, something is very wrong here. On the back end of what's going on there is there's a, a big set of trends of like PKI or public key infrastructure cryptography that's happening to verify that the website has a certain identity based off of its um, linkage to something called a certificate exchange. And so this PKI transaction set that happens between a CA and um, uh, the end website, and ultimately you being able to verify that this is really from the National Health, uh, from the NHS or from CDC, et cetera, um, the Vault actually plays a very big role in that. Um, Vault plays a role in being able to serve as what's called an intermediate CA. So you can deploy Vault instances to be able to kind of like help offload some of the cryptographic workloads there and verifying these websites. So certainly there's an area where Vault can support that process but there's a big challenge set now that there's a lot of people trying to take advantage of um, kind of concern around COVID. I think one of the things that I'm most concerned about especially kind of wrapping this up in terms of cryptography is around um, the there's now a very physical sort of concern of the dichotomy between secrets and privacy and sort of the performance of applications that are really meant to address um, some of the concerns around COVID-19. Um, we talked a lot about this in terms of like the, the developer challenge of how do I build applications to be able to protect secrets, but now there's a physical analog to this, which is around like contact tracing, right? Like how do I make sure that I can be able to understand anyone that I've come into contact with might or might not have, um, you know, this this virus um, and should I like take steps to be able to make sure that I properly um, uh, you know quarantine myself etc um, this is a, a real-world challenge that some um, places like Singapore are facing right now and there's a very big urge to be able to rightfully make that system as performant as possible but making that system performant um, seemingly comes at the cost of like anonymity and sort of personal privacy and so we have the techniques within um, cryptography to be able to um, harness solutions like tokenization, format-preserving encryption, um, and then increasingly there's a new set of encryption uh, principles called homomorphic encryption, which is around how we be able, to, how we're able to basically operate certain types of like analytical tasks on encrypted data at rest, so not being able to unencrypt things. Um, all of these tools exist for us to be able to solve that problem. Um, our goal as an industry and then contextually within Vault is to solve them in such a way that there does not have to be this dichotomy between you know, privacy and performance. And now we have a very real serious challenge here where we have to be able to ensure that there's like user privacy and there's protection against adversaries that are trying to steal user information. But we need to make these systems performant because if we get them wrong, I mean, there could be very lethal consequences to that. There is one less, one slightly less serious question as per HashiCast tradition. Very less serious question. If you were a computer game, which one would you be? Ooh, um, that, <laughs> that's such a good question. Um, I would be Stellaris. Um, so Stellaris is, uh, if you're not familiar with that, it's like this 4X strategy game where you basically are building a civilization that tries to spread across the stars um, and like deals with sort of the, the varying challenges of building like an interstellar organization while at the same time trying to you know deal with like adversaries that come up etc the reason why i'm saying that is because i would at least one of the things that i'm really passionate about whether it's about vault or everything else is the fact that there's always something cool left to learn there's always something exciting over the horizon to learn about and to kind of like 
integrate with into my personal life and then deal with like, challenges and otherwise learn something out of that whole experience. Um, and Stellaris is a game that's really good about that. You know, even when you've built out like, you know, an organ, like a, a galaxy wide, like federation of sort of civilizations to manage, there's always these like random events that come up that are always really fascinating to deal with. And so I don't know. I, I like the sort of like the, the optimistic sort of, there's always something new over the horizon to learn. Um, it gets a little slow at times, but it's still fun. Is this for PC? It's for PC. I think it. I don't know if it's on consoles or not, but I think it's it's definitely on PC. We're both going to be checking this out later, I think. Hey, Barry, you're not getting away with this. What? Which game would you be? Super Smash Brothers, mostly because it's, you know, it's just, it's lighthearted. You know, it's got some moments of substance, you know. <laughs> you've got, That's awesome. You've got a lot of characters that you can wear a lot of hats with a lot of different talents, and you acknowledge their talents. You know, and, and you, it's a multiplayer game, and I like hanging around people. So, yeah, I would definitely be Super Smash Brothers. Nick? Oh, I was hoping I was going to get out of this. No, you're not going to get out of this. Well, it's just as well I go on last, because I've been thinking about this whilst you've been talking. I'd be my favorite game. I'd be Street Fighter 2. Oh, nice. The reason that I'd be Street Fighter 2 is I wouldn't actually be Street Fighter 2 the game. I would be the person that loses in Street Fighter 2, because I believe in one thing, and that is that when you get knocked on your backside get back up and try again. And I think um, Street Fighter 2 is all about getting knocked on your backside and getting back up and having another go. What about all the other Street Fighters? Street Fighter 2 Turbo was good. Um, Alpha was was kind of good. 3, I think I kind of had a, a bit of a um, a respite in, in Street Fighter. I played Street Fighter 2 a lot. And if you look at my grades, you will understand absolutely why my grades are what they are. I want to say thank you so much for chatting to us today. It's been absolutely fascinating, as always. And it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. And I'm sure that we've got to get you back on soon. Well, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. I really appreciate both your time. You've been listening to HashiCasts with your hosts, Rosemary Wong and Nick Jackson. Our guest today was Annie Minoski. Be sure to tune in next time.